Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data's I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. Science and art come together this week as engineers program E. coli to see in colour and use it to paint pictures. Three papers published together traced the spread of Zika virus across the Americas. And what will it take to get microscopic medical bots out of the lab and into your body? This is The Nature Podcast for May the 25th, 2017. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. First, Kerry is here with a story about a supervillain and the band of scientists trying to track it down. The story starts around 2013. The supervillain is Zika virus, and it was always one step ahead. Unlike other recent outbreaks in, in the kind of public consciousness, like Ebola, for example, or the flu, Zika was relatively off the radar. This is Bronwyn McInnes from the Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We all, in our own domains, scrambled to learn as much as we could about the virus and how it spread and caused disease. They knew that their enemy had a long history. It was first detected in the late 1940s in Africa. But recently, all that had been seen of it were a few cases in Asia on some islands in the Pacific. That was before it reared its head in Brazil. Here's Nicholas Lohman, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And really what we were trying to do was, was fill in the gaps between what was going on in Asia and uh, um, how, we, how we ended up where we are now. Zika had taken everyone by surprise and there were plenty of reasons that it was a fearful foe. There were so many questions when Zika really kind of broke onto the public and scientific consciousness. You know, Zika's kind of difficult, particularly because many cases are asymptomatic. Infections are quite transient. And, you know, when there are cases, it's very hard to detect whether 
clinically whether this is Zika you're looking at or another virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes. Where and what um, symptoms and complications we were seeing. And then questions about um, the evolution of the Zika virus as it spread. The scientists had their work cut out, but they also had secret weapons. They could sequence Zika genomes, fingerprints of the virus left behind in samples from patients and mosquitoes it had infected. You know, if we get genome sequences and we can compare them, they're really like a kind of time capsule. We can peer into them and, and try and understand how the virus has evolved. They were also going to need to go and get these samples, especially from regions in the northeast of Brazil. This is the region where they suspected the outbreak began and where the strongest link emerged between Zika infection in pregnant women and their babies being born with abnormally small heads, a condition called microcephaly. To travel around the infected regions looking for Zika in samples, one group of scientists kitted out a vehicle befitting a team of superheroes, a caravan being towed by a jeep. You know, the kind of the inspiration was kind of Top Gear style uh, road trip. Top Gear for non-Brits is a BBC TV show about cars whose hosts often do driving-related trips and challenges. Nicholas Lohman and his team worked long days driving the mobile lab between regional labs in northeast Brazil, combing through samples for viruses and generating the sequences to see how they were related. They used every minute of the trip to do it, says project leader Luis Alcantara, who's based at the Fiocruz Research Institute in northeast Brazil. You took the, the virus to sequence inside the bus. During the trip between one state and another state, you continue to work in the sequence inside the bus. Having the mobile lab sped everything up. The team released data online as soon as they could collect it and posted preprints of their work. Their data, plus the work from two other groups, including Bronwyn's, has yielded the earliest Zika sequence yet found in Brazil from February 2014. Overall, the results, published in three papers in Nature and one in Nature Protocols, give the clearest picture yet of how Zika emerged. Zika in Brazil seemed to be split into several kind of sub-lineages or, or different uh, clusters. And, but, you know, the, the ancestor of these clusters all seemed to be from uh, northeast Brazil and as far back as, as early uh, 2014. So we were probably introduced into northeast Brazil and circulated in northeast Brazil for a, for a full year before it was uh, first detected. From northeast Brazil, it leapt to other parts of the country before finding its way across the Americas to the Caribbean and from there at least four separate times to the US, to Florida. And we can really get that all, all from phylogenetic information. It also gives us, you know, at least prospectively, evidence that with more sensitive methods like genome sequencing, for example, surveillance systems could have been able to pick this up. At the end of most superhero stories, the villain is crushed, never to be seen again. In theory, that's uh, exactly what we'd love to be able to do. But in this story, the end is a little more complicated. This is the real world, after all. Bronwyn says that their data will help pinpoint where any new hotspots of Zika come from and which sequences they relate to. That could inform when to screen people arriving from particular countries, for example. Other colleagues are sequencing genomes from the ongoing yellow fever outbreak in Brazil to keep an eye on how it's being transmitted and help public health officials keep a lid on the outbreak. Meanwhile, the mobile lab is on the move. This week, Luis and the team are starting the second leg of their project, covering the Amazon. They plan to take the kit to the central east and south of Brazil in the coming year.
and there's good news for the passengers. The bus has had an upgrade. It's a motorhome with two laps, and uh, you'll be more comfortable than a bus. That was Luis Alcantara, and you also heard from Nick Lohman and Bronwyn McInnes. There are three papers that trace the Zika outbreak in Nature this week. Find them all at nature.com slash nature, and a news and views by Michael Warraby, who you've heard from before on the show, in the same place. Later on in the news chat, experimental Ebola vaccines may be used to tackle the latest outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Right now, Kerry's back again with the research highlights. One way of controlling diseases or pests is to handicap them with harmful mutations. But the natural world has a way around. That's according to a study of a crop pest called the red flower beetle. Researchers tested whether the beetles could evade the effects of an inserted mutation, known as a gene drive, with their own naturally occurring genetic variation. Many wild beetle groups had mutations that made them immune to gene drives targeting three different genes. Previous work from the same team suggests a similar effect in mosquitoes. The paper is in Science Advances. The sticky feet of geckos have inspired scientists to make adhesives, but it's hard to get them working on 3D surfaces or delicate objects. A team of materials scientists spread tiny, stretchy hairs across a flexible membrane and attach that to a solid disc. The gadget has a tube attachment, which can change the pressure on the membrane. When they lowered the pressure, the membrane got stickier, allowing them to position the device on an object and then grab it. They suspended coffee cups, cherry tomatoes and a plastic bag. Just your regular lab bench debris. More in the journal PNAS. Christopher Voigt spends his time playing with bacteria. So do lots of biologists. But Christopher's career path didn't start like most of theirs, with lectures on Darwin and DNA and practicals involving fruit flies. Well, I actually haven't taken a class in biology, so I... Not, not um, a single class. No, that's it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't tell them. But I was interested in, in computer science when I was um, in high school, and I did a lot of programming, and I decided in chemical engineering to apply it to problems in the physical sciences. And to me, using biology as a programming substrate is about as hard as it gets. And so I, I took it on as a challenge. Christopher is interested in programming living organisms to do all sorts of things. This week, he's got a paper out in Nature Chemical Biology, which describes how bacteria can be genetically engineered to see in colour and capture images. I asked him how common it is to engineer bacteria to respond to light. There has been uh, a lot of work to be able to get cells to be able to respond to light. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, we built bacteria that are able to respond to one color of light. We had a red light sensor and connected it to an enzyme that when that enzyme is expressed, it then turns the dish black. So we have a Petri dish uh, on which we spread the bacteria. And so you could take a black and white image, shine it on the plate, and then it would record that image. It's very stable. I still have about a dozen of them in my office. Uh, do you have them up on the wall? I do. Have you got pictures of your family that you've done or anything like that? Oh, nothing of my family, but we have Super Mario. So you printed these pictures back in 2005 by shining an image onto a plate of these light-sensitive bacteria. The light triggers them to make pigment, and so they gradually build up the picture a bit like a photograph. 
But now you've taken it a step further by inserting three light receptors into the bacteria, one for red, green, and blue light. And then you're using those sensors to control production of red, green, and blue pigments. So now a plate of these genetically modified bacteria can make color pictures. That's right. What we've done here is combined different light sensors that respond to different colors that allow you then to shine a color image at cells and be able to control different genes with the different wavelengths. So that seems like in some ways the next logical step, but presumably it's been quite tricky. It's taken you over 10 years to to get to that stage. Well, we haven't been working the entire time on this project, but it did require a lot of advances to make it even possible. As you increase the complexity of what you're trying to get a cell to do, it becomes exponentially harder to put all the pieces together, have them work in concert, and have the cell be happy when you put the DNA in. It sounds like a really fun thing. It sounds like a really neat thing to be able to create these almost photographs. But presumably there's some motivation for it beyond just, hey, look, it's nice we can create these pictures. Yeah, so part of the motivation was to be able to control gene expression remotely and quickly. And so, for example, if you're looking at the production of a chemical in a fermenter, for example, if it's in a million liter fermenter, then it becomes technically difficult to turn genes on and off at different times when they're needed. And so what this would allow you to do is use different colors of light to in real time change what the cells are doing without having to directly connect with the cells. And so you can imagine having a big fermenter with all different colors of lights flashing in it. So we think of it as sort of disco bacteria. So here you can control the expression of different genes with three different colors of light. Would it be possible to go even further and have an even bigger range of light receptors inserted into the bacteria? Uh, Certainly. Uh, I think there's a bacterium that has up to 50 light sensors in it to respond to all sorts of things. But I, I think what we're really trying to do with this is not scale up making better photographs, but to scale up genetic engineering. And we're just using this as a toy example of how to do that. And so we envision a future where we can go from this design that we published to being able to design entire genomes where you have sensing functions that are happening, genetic circuitry that process the information from those sensors, and many different pathways that are being controlled so that you could create an organism that, say, makes a much more complex material or chemical than you could do today. And are you done with this toy example now, now that you've kind of proved the concept? Is that good? You can put the toy back on the shelf, or are there more things you want to do with it? Oh, there are lots more things to do, even as a toy system. So I'd love to start thinking about can we put in the ability to respond uh, to particular patterns of light or to record patterns of light? You can really imagine uh, all sorts of things to have the cell do. And that would move it towards not just being able to see color, to see images, but to start to perceive it as well. That was Christopher Voigt. Find the paper at nature.com forward slash ncambio. And at nature.com forward slash news, there's also a news story. Written by our very own Adam Levy. 
Now, I've been finding out about medical microbots, which are basically tiny robots that could be designed to move around inside your body doing helpful medical things. Like in the cartoon The Magic School Bus, or the film Fantastic Voyage, where the people shrink down to microscopic size and have to swim around through blood and splash through stomach acid and fight white blood cells. Not really, no. Okay, how about the microbots in Big Hero 6? Or the Borg nanoprobes in Star Trek? Or the drones of tiny robots that Prince Charles says are going to turn everything into grey goo? Oh, yeah, no, that last one. That's actually it, yeah. Really? No. Look, medical microbots do have the potential to be pretty cool. They could be used to carry drugs around, or perform surgery, or replace failing bodily functions. But there's still plenty of work needed before they'll be ready to transport cancer drugs to tumours or clear clogged arteries. A comment piece this week takes a look at the state of medical microbot technology. And so I sat down with Nature comment editor Joe Baker to find out more. There are many groups around the world who are looking at building these sort of micro machines, different types, different ways of propelling them. They need to overcome a lot of challenges about the environment within the body they can be about the size of a cell. So imagine them within the bloodstream and they've got to somehow kind of weave their way through. So at the moment, the focus is on sort of designing the basic structure, how they work and how they propel themselves is quite a big issue with yeah, that. Yeah, so there are, there are various ways to propel them. So the first way is using chemistry. They're called chemical micromotors and you can build in catalysts that then react when you put them in a liquid and they can move quite quickly and quite well, but they are very hard to control and they tend to use really toxic substances. So um, chemical micromotors is, is one option with some challenges to overcome. What, what are the other types of So propulsion? another type is you can drive them if you make them out of metallic materials. So you put something like iron, a layer of iron in them, then you can drive them using magnetic fields. So you can steer them fairly precisely if you want them to move in a straight line from A to B but if you want to get them to go through a blood vessel or something like that it's very hard to get them to move more naturally and that's where the third type of micromotor comes in which uses a biological means of of propulsion. If you make a synthetic um, micromotor and then you can put a, a sperm cell or a bacterium then you can use it to sort of drive a little structure so they're combining artificial components and naturally occurring yeah, biological components. Yeah. Because the physical micromotors are only good at certain tasks and they're fairly, they're a little bit clunky essentially in what they can do at the moment. Um, whereas obviously biology gives us you know, wonderful things like bacteria and sperm, which they can do a whole load of other things. So they can swim naturally through the body. They can um, actually perform sort of natural reactions. So if you want to fertilise an egg with a sperm, all of those reactions are things which the sperm can do. So you can use the biological bits for the bits that the mechanical bits aren't very good at and vice versa when you need some mechanical bits for something that the biology isn't very good at. And one example was trying to help sperm that can't move very well, which is a big cause of infertility. Can you use a mechanical micromotor attached to the sperm to help with the propulsion. Yeah, so you can give it basically give it a lift, you know, to the egg. The authors of our piece have actually made this sort of metallic helix um, which they can drive magnetically to move the, the sperm to the egg directly. The comment piece mentions some of the sort of current challenges that yeah. we have with micromotors. What, what kind of things are currently causing scientists' headaches? 
So at the moment, everything is pretty much being done in the Petri dish in a lab where you can look at it through a microscope and see what's going on. And you can control things, you can use big magnets, you can do what you like. But if you want to bring this into clinical settings, then you need other tools. You can't stick a human under an electron microscope. So these authors are calling for better biomedical imaging. Because if, if we're going to put a lot of very small, very fast-moving things in our body and want to see like whether they're working or not, we need to be able to see what they're doing and that's not something that current technology can can manage. And what kind of things might be able to help with visualisations of microbots inside the body? The authors highlight a few techniques that look very promising. They think combining different types of imaging techniques and taking the good bits from all of them is the way forward. So, for instance, ultrasound. If you combine it with different forms of infrared imaging and optical imaging, you can get both sort of high contrast images and sensitivity and you can also get really good sharp images with good spatial resolution as well. And it's not just imaging technology, there are still a lot of other challenges with microbot technology as it stands currently. When you finished using these things in the body then what do you do with them? But the authors of the comment piece did seem quite optimistic about the sort of speed with which this could develop. I think they're quite bold in their their ideas and their experiments. They so, were talking about within the next decade we could ha- we could have sort of use for non-invasive therapeutic microbots. Yes, I think I think they believe that if we if we find a few like specific cases where these technologies can be used, so such as the assisted fertilization, then you can really try and start to bring everything together. It, it gives people a focus. That was Joe Baker talking about the comment piece she edited that was written by Mariana Medina-Sanchez and Oliver Schmidt. And it can be found at nature.com slash news, along with some images of microbots, including the sperm bots mentioned in the piece. Time now for the latest news, and Amy Maxman is on the line from the Nature San Francisco office. Amy, there's been an Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. What's the situation? How many cases have there been reported? So far, there are 34 suspected cases. There's been four deaths, but only two of these deaths um, have been confirmed as testing positive for Ebola. Um, And the reason why there's only two that are confirmed so far is that the samples have to travel from this area where there's no roads at all. So the sample has to be taken by motorbike, by foot to a health center there, and then transferred, I suppose, by car and a lot of unpaved roads to the capital in Kinshasa, and that's where they can be tested. So, so far, only two have been confirmed. Um, And there's about 400 people who had contact with the people who are suspected of having Ebola that are being monitored. How much fear is there that this uh, incidence of Ebola could spread more widely? On the one hand, WHO is quick to say that they are taking it very seriously. That said, this is the eighth outbreak in DRC, at least the eighth outbreak, maybe there's more we don't know about, and they have burnt out themselves. Uh, and that's just because people stay in their areas often because there's not a lot of roads. So they've previously not spread like wildfire. Nonetheless, there's always a concern that it could spread. Uh, and so people are taking it quite seriously. And in this case, part of that taking it seriously is plans to potentially use a vaccine to, to protect against spread. Exactly. And that's because during the last outbreak, sort of towards the tail end of the last outbreak in Guinea, there's a vaccine that looked pretty good in clinical trials in Guinea. Actually, it looks really good. 
even though it's not yet been approved by any regulatory agency, the WHO put together a working group, and that working group in April recommended that if there's another Ebola outbreak, this vaccine be promptly deployed, as long as it was the same strain, and indeed it is the same strain. Well, in that case, why not start giving out the vaccine as soon as possible? What's, what's stopping things progressing right now? That's a great question. So back to the remoteness of the area, it's going to be very expensive and uh, require a lot of person hours and efforts to get the vaccine to people. Uh, it has to be kept at minus 80, which is a really big deal in a tropical country. So it will have to go inside of uh, sort of freezers that stay cold. And there's not like a constant source of electricity anywhere. So it will have to be inside portable freezers, you know, within helicopters, maybe on the backs of motorbikes. Uh, it's logistically really, really hard to get there. I mean, to give you a sense, uh, Doctors Without Borders, as of Friday, still hadn't gotten to the epicenter within the province in the north where the outbreak was. Um, so logistically, it's going to be extremely complicated. Now, it seems like the World Health Organization and Congolese authorities and others are all on board to help this happen, but it's not going to be simple. And how would actually giving out the vaccine once it's in the correct location work? Can you give it to people who've already been exposed? What they would do is they would do the same sort of design that was taken during um, the outbreak in Guinea, where they would vaccinate anybody who had contact with people who had had Ebola and also the contacts of those people. So this is called the ring design. So if they had already been infected, it's too late, most likely. But the idea is if, you know, they had not been, then they'll be protected. Is the protection pretty universal or is there still a chance that people might might catch Ebola even after the vaccination? There's a lot of unknowns about how long the vaccine lasts for. However, in the trial in Guinea, nobody who got vaccinated got Ebola. But the checkpoint was 10 days after vaccination. So this doesn't answer how long the vaccine lasts for, but it does say, it does suggest pretty highly that there is... Um, some great coverage, at least soon after the vaccine. Elsewhere in Chile, actually, there's been another experimental intervention that has been sparking controversy. Now, this isn't about disease. What is this intervention looking to affect? So there's a Canadian foundation who has proposed uh, to the Chilean government to revive Chilean fisheries by releasing iron into the Pacific Ocean. And the idea is this iron would stimulate phytoplankton, um, and I suppose that's what fish would eat. Well, has this kind of idea ever been attempted before? Yeah, since um, there's been at least 13 iron fertilization experiments since 1990, but there's been some kind of worrying uh, side effects that it could possibly lead to toxic algal blooms. So actually, because of these experiments, the UN uh, Convention on Biological Diversity put a moratorium on all of but the smallest ocean fertilization projects uh, quite a while ago. But this group still would hope to do it. So how are they hoping to, to carry this out if there's been this moratorium? Because the plant experiment takes place in Chilean waters, it's exempt from those rules. And what are they actually hoping to learn from this experiment? I think the previous studies aren't very clear about possible benefits and the drawbacks. And so for that reason, the Chilean government recommended that there should be input from the Chilean Academy of Science. So they'll be meeting to discuss this and look at the evidence and to see if it should go forward. So why would scientists be concerned that this experiment might not be worth doing in the first place? 
they're concerned because of the geology of the Chilean coast and the patterns of, of ocean currents there. Uh, it's very difficult to see what an input in one place does in that specific place if currents are moving. So the timing and the place of, of the iron inputs might shift over time, and it's hard to tell what came from where. So even if it was having an effect, it would be hard to really observe what that effect was? Exactly. What worries scientists is that the foundation in 2012 had another fertilization project uh, that they carried out off the coast of British Columbia. And in that project, the group dumped iron sulfide into the ocean. And in the years since, scientists haven't seen any evidence that the experiment worked. Do we know when this might happen, if it were to? So we don't know about when it will be approved, but the idea the foundation hopes that this happens uh, as soon as 2018, and they would dump 10 tons of iron particles off the coast. Thank you, Amy, our reporter based in San Francisco. Find all the latest science news over at Nature News' site, nature.com forward slash news. That's all we have time for this week, but look out for Backchat, landing on your podcast feed in the next couple of days. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.